Now let's begin by enjoying the sound of the bell. Welcome everyone. It's so good to have everybody here. I really appreciate people's patience and um, willingness to be with this, figure out how to do a hybrid meeting. It's We don't know how to do this, and so we're figuring it out together as we go. So thank you for your patience and um, being willing to make mistakes until we figure it out. So I have a question for you. What is the biggest obstacle to your happiness? What is this thing that prevents you from feeling free and happy? I don't know where your, where your thoughts went about that, but maybe it was to some external event or other, but I'd like to talk about ourselves as our own biggest obstacle to happiness, and specifically our mind. I'm going to present tonight a model for understanding why our minds seem to block our happiness. I call this model the Three Ring Circus. It is a simple model, uh, and I hope you'll find it useful. And I'll be speaking in broad generalizations. So I'm going to be making claims about how our minds work and that sort of thing. And these apply, but in extreme cases, sometimes they don't apply so well. So let's not get sidetracked on all the places this doesn't apply and spend our effort thinking about where it actually does apply. So I'll start by sharing a, a um, little graphic representation. So you'll see there's three rings here. I'm going to talk about each one of these rings starting in the middle. But the middle ring represents our core suffering. And the ring outside of that represents the self that we create because of our core suffering. And the outer ring represents the world that we interact with. Three ring circus our core suffering, our created sense of self, and all the things we think of as not me that we interact with. Simple enough? Yeah, 
I don't think I'll leave it up there. It's uh, easy enough to remember. Let's start with that center circle, our core suffering. Core suffering is that inner pain that we do not want to feel. It's kind of like a molten core at our center. And it feels so painful that we cut it out of our awareness. So when we do feel that, when it does leak through like, a, like Mount St. Helens erupting and the hot magma coming out, the pain is so intense that it can feel like we're going to die from this. I've had two strong experiences when I first touched my core suffering. One was when I touched my core suffering of fear and another when I touched my core suffering of shame. And both times the physical experience was incredibly intense. Incredibly intense. No wonder we don't want to feel our core suffering. It felt life-threatening to touch this. No one escapes having core suffering, and here's the basic reason why. We are inside of our mother, inside of her uterus, and all our needs are met. For us, it's the perfect environment. We never get hungry. We never get cold. We're safe from the outside world. It sounds like a pretty lovely place to be. It's a kind of a perfect experience for us. And then we get born into an imperfect world. And no matter how much our parents love us, they will fall short. No matter how fortunate an environment we, we are born into, it will disappoint us. Our needs will not be met. And when that happens, we blame ourselves. Our developing minds don't understand why our needs aren't met, so we blame ourselves. Our, our young minds are very self-centered, and we think, well, if my needs aren't being met, it must be because something is wrong with me. And we're ashamed about that. We don't want that. It hurts. This core suffering is an internal belief created by an external problem. An internal belief or experience created by an external problem. I'll give you some examples. Here's, here's a... Let's just say that my father thinks I'm too sensitive. Right? That's the external problem. The internal belief that I develop around that is I am defective. That's, that's an example. Another example. Uh, my family wants me to grow up to be a cowboy. That's an external problem for me because I'm afraid of horses and I don't really want to kill cows. But the internal belief is that since I have those proclivities of not wanting to um, kill cows and ride horses, I'm ashamed of who I am. Another example. Uh, let's say that you have an alcoholic mother and she's a mess. That's an external problem. The internal belief that arises from that is my only worth is when I care for my mother. I have no worth otherwise. 
these are just hypothetical examples. And every one of us has some examples like this that help us develop these core suffering experiences. You could probably um, touch your own and tell your own story around this. There's as many as there are people. But there's two important things about our core suffering. The first one is this. The fact that we have core suffering is true. We have that now. We have core suffering. And the second fact is that the facts around that core suffering are false. Right? So let me go back to my examples. So in, in one of my examples, I said, I feel defective. So that's true. I feel defective. But it's false because it's my father's the one that thinks I'm too sensitive. In reality, I'm fine just like I am. In fact, my high sensitivity is a kind of a superpower. So it's true that I feel defective, but it's false the reasons behind it. There's somebody else's reasons, not my good reasons. Another example there was when I said I, I felt shame. That's true, I feel shame. But the false, the false behind it is that my family are the ones that don't think I measure up to be a cowboy. I have no interest in being a cowboy. The reality is I'm fine just as I am. So it's true that I have that suffering, that shame, but it's false that it has a factual reason. Make sense? Yeah. The basic bottom line here is our core suffering is not about us. Our child's mind dealt with an imperfect world the only way it could, to blame ourselves. So when a child with this childish mind encounters an external problem, all we can do is blame ourselves for that. The self-blame is not true. The reality all along is that you've been fine just as you are. You're fine just as you are. That's the center circle, the core suffering circle. Let's expand out from that. Out to the circle of self. We don't want to feel that core suffering circle. We don't want to feel that. It is really painful. It is out of proportion painful. Because as young children, we experience things out of proportion. Anybody who's had a two-year-old or a three-year-old will know they will go to the mat to get a cookie, right? <laughs> they will have a two-hour tantrum to have a cookie. That's the mind that created our core suffering. We don't want to feel that intense pain that we felt when we were two or three or five or whenever we started to make this core suffering. So we develop sets of beliefs and behaviors to keep it at bay. And these beliefs and behaviors are that middle circle, the circle of our self. That self we create, those beliefs and behaviors are what we usually think of as me. I'm quiet or I'm talkative. That's me. I love people, or I'm, I'm a peacemaker. Well, that's me. Or I'm angry, or I avoid people. You know, all these qualities you can name are all 
part of that center, that circle of self, the middle circle. And they are all designed to prevent us from feeling the core suffering. So let's give some more examples. So my core suffering, again, is shame, right? That's, that's a strong core suffering for me. My self circle then contains the beliefs and behaviors that I developed so that I wouldn't have to feel that shame. Or even more, I wouldn't even know it was there, which most of my life I've not even known it's there. So my beliefs and behaviors that arose around fame, I mean, shame, excuse me, I don't want to feel the shame of being rejected. So what do I do? I please people. That's who I think I am, a people pleaser. I don't want to feel the shame of not doing something well. So what personality did I create? I became a perfectionist. I didn't want to give anyone anything to criticize that would shame me. I don't want to feel the shame of being unprepared. So what kind of behaviors did I create? I plan. I make a plan. So I don't feel the shame of being unprepared. These are, of course, generalizations. I don't always believe or act in these ways. But if I really look closely at myself, these beliefs and behaviors appear in me again and again and again. They're pointing to something. They're pointing to my core suffering. Okay, let's move out to the third circle, the world. It's the largest circle and it represents everything that we encounter in our life that we don't think of as me. Now our self circle wants to prevent the world from seeing or triggering our core suffering. That's one of the main things it does. Our self circle wants to prevent the world from seeing or triggering our core suffering. So we end up always trying to control the world. And we know how successful that's going to be, right? Not very. And, and you know, many of our beliefs and behaviors in, uh, of the self circle are to make the world our ally in keeping our core suffering at bay. So if you think about it, when we have judgment or blame or anger or manipulation, it's sort of like fortresses we build out there to make sure that the world doesn't get in and see that core suffering or trigger that core suffering. And boy, when somebody doesn't play along, that's when the judgment comes up. That's when the blame comes up. That's when the anger comes up and the manipulation. They've gotten too close and we think it's their fault. We think it's all their fault. That's why I'm unhappy. If that person would just behave differently, I'd be fine. Thank you. And we all know that the world out there is effectively infinite. You know, we can't we can't count high enough to know how many possible ways that the world could touch our core suffering. So we being finite, this is not going to be a good battle for us. It is not going to win. I mean, it is going to win. We are not going to win. Lay that one down.
And we often look out to that world circle as the cause of our suffering, the big bad world. And we can name, we could sit here and spend the rest of the evening naming all the ways that the big bad world is making us unhappy. All of us could. And to some extent, this is true. The world does have an impact on our happiness. So, for instance, if you're denied basic human rights, if you're physically assaulted, any number of these sorts of things, you will suffer. So there is truth in the, fa in the idea that the world does cause our suffering. But earlier I asked about what was the biggest obstacle to our happiness. And I wasn't pointing out at the world. I was pointing to our two inner circles, our core suffering and our creation of a self. We can't do much about that outside world, but luckily we can do a lot about our core suffering and our creation of a self. We can do a lot about that. The self circle is where we start. That's where we start. And why do we start there? Because we can't, first of all, control the outside world. That's kind of too much. And we can't do much about our core suffering, at least initially, because it's so buried that we aren't even aware of it. It's just so buried. But the middle circle, our beliefs and our behaviors, they are on full display, baby. They are on full display. So let's start there. Let's start there. And that's where Zen practice starts. Zen practice is really about those two inner, inner circles, largely. Um, and it's contrasted by the idea of when a lot of people, when they show up to practice, they show up with a dream of enlightenment, right? And that enlightenment dream is that those two inner circles will be transformed and cleansed. And then the whole outside circle, the world, will see us as a Buddha and think we're great. But the Zen reality is really different from that. Our, our practice is to unflinchingly sit with the two inner circles so that they can be transformed from suffering to love. And eventually that love becomes so vast that it swells to take in all three circles. How do we do that? Step number one is, of course, to get to know your self-circle. Whether we like it or not, our self-circle is on full display. Full display. Others can see it very easily, even when we try and hide it. It's a real irony. It's a real irony. Um, I feel so fortunate to have had, particularly Michael, such a good friend, where he can see my self-circle and he can report to me honestly and accurately what I'm doing in a way that I can't see. That is such a gift. Such a gift. Mm. So that's one way to see it, but really Zen meditation makes our self-circle as visible to us as it is to others. That's, what, that's one of the main things that we're doing here. We're watching so we can see what that self looks like. There are lots of techniques for it. I'm, I'm just going to talk about one tonight because all of these points I'm bringing up, we could really go into much deeper. This is kind of an overview tonight. 
Um, so I'm just going to bring up one practice for seeing our self-circle, and that's labeling our thoughts. And then Joko Beck has been my primary teacher on this. Uh, she's really, really articulated this so beautifully. So here's the practice. The practice is to settle yourself. You know how to do that by listening to the sound of the bell, settling, calming our body. And once our body has calmed and we have settled to some degree, we can begin to notice the thoughts that are arising. We begin to notice our self-circle functioning. As those thoughts emerge, we simply give them a label. Anger. Planning. Grocery list. What my third grade teacher said to me. You know, we just give it, we just give it a simple label, not too general and not too specific. Something that's useful so we can recognize the pattern. And if you do this long enough, you'll likely get bored. And we'll label that too. Boredom. Avoidance. Whatever, whatever it is, we just simply give it a label. The beauty of this is when you do it diligently, hour after hour, and day after day, and month after month, you begin to see a clear picture of the thoughts and behaviors that form your self-circle. What's so obvious to others about you becomes obvious to you. So as I've done this practice, I've noticed that some recurring things come up that, I, that I've learned to label. I have, I have four really recurring thoughts that come up in my self-circle. First one is planning. Planning, planning, planning. Not being here. I'm, gonna, I'm in the future. I'm planning the future. When I get to the future, I'll be planning that the next future. So that comes up a lot. Another one that comes up a lot for me is revising the past so that I look better. I said X, but I wish I'd said Y. I did this, but I wish I'd done that. If I let that go long enough, I actually believe I did that instead of this. You know, it's, it's uh, interesting. Um, another kind of thought that comes up is I explain myself to someone who isn't there. I have a, I have a one-sided conversation with somebody that I want to explain something to, and they can't, they can't respond. And then the fourth one is, is ruminating over past hurts. Ruminating, turning it over and over and over again. Hmm. The thoughts that come up for you will probably be different than that. That's just what I've noticed about me and, and my three-ring circus of a, of a mind. That's what comes up. So labeling your thoughts in that way not only allows you insight into your self-circle, you know, you can see that my self-circle is made up of, of a lot of those kind of thoughts. But it also gives you insight into your suffering circle. Why? Because my th repetitive thoughts that I think over and over again 
are protecting me from a certain kind of experience. That's the core suffering. All of those thoughts that, that I have chronically are designed to prevent me from not feeling shame. Every one of them. So by looking clearly at my self-circle, I began to have insight into what I couldn't see, which was my core suffering. And my core suffering being shame, I, I began to see it more. You sort of back into the awareness of it. It's kind of like a black hole. You know, astronomers, they can't look directly at a black hole because it doesn't emit any light. Like our core suffering doesn't emit much light for us. But by understanding what all of the celestial bodies around the black hole are doing, the scientists can learn a lot about the black hole without having to see it directly. And I think that's probably a pretty good analogy for learning about our core suffering. We may not be able to see it directly, at least at first, but we can look at see it as effects on the thoughts and behaviors that circle around it. And that gives us an ability to, to know about the core suffering. So when we get that insight into our core suffering, by looking at our circle of self, we begin to be able to work with our core suffering rather than simply having our core suffering work on us. It's been working on us our whole lives, usually invisibly, but we now can degenerate the ability to work with it. And the, the way that we work with it is counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive because it's the exact opposite of what we've been doing for most of our lives. Most of our lives we've been running from our core suffering and avoiding it. But the practice here is to actually lean into it. To be willing to feel it as often as possible. For as long as possible. This is not trivial, right? This is not trivial. When you touch your core suffering, it is a powerful experience. And it's the very reason that we've spent our whole life not touching it. The feelings and physical sensations that come up are very strong and they can be very frightening. When I first touched my core suffering, I touched fear first and then later I touched shame. When I touched fear for the first time, it was like I got hit by a bolt of lightning. Boom! It was just terribly frightening. I had no idea I carried that around inside me. I felt like I could only face that for seconds before I needed to shut the door. And I've been practicing for decades at this point. I thought I was prepared. I, I was shocked. Um, when I felt my shame for the first time, I had some more skills and I could be with it. And I remember laying in bed in, in the middle of the night and it came up and I was actually kind of excited that it came up. And I lay there for about a half an hour and I felt it, but it felt like it was going to kill me. It felt like my guts were in a blender. I mean, literally like my guts were being shredded, like I was harming myself to be open to this. So I just want to make the point that this is not trivial. This is not trivial. When you touch your core suffering, you know it. You know it. 
But the practice again is to lean in as long and as clearly as I can. Now that first time that meant about five seconds. That's okay. That is perfectly okay. Next time, maybe a little longer. There's no shoulds here. There's nobody telling you how you need to do this. You need to trust yourself. When you're ready, it'll be there. The beautiful part about this is that all we need to do is be willing to feel it. We don't need to think it out. We don't need to even call it a name or anything because feeling itself leads to transformation. When we're willing to feel it by itself, it begins to heal. All we need to do is be willing to feel it and the willingness is the medicine. I think of that willingness to feel of, like my, my great aunt Alice lived in Hawaii and she, she moved to Seattle and she brought a little kumquat tree with her in a, in a pot and she moved into this retirement home. And she, at first the kumquat tree started to die and she didn't know what to do about it because it was used to the nice warm Hawaii environment and then she got to, it got to Seattle and it didn't do so well. But she discovered that if she put it into her south facing window and she let it absorb the light of the sun, it healed itself. And eventually it grew those tangy orange kumquats that I used to like as a kid when I'd go and she'd let me pick one off her tree when I'd go visit her in her retirement home. And it's like that for our suffering. If we're willing to put it in the light, it will heal itself and it will grow fruit. We don't need to do more to it. We just need to put it in the sun and let it absorb the sun. And before you know it, pop, there's a fruit. Okay, I'm going to share my screen one more time because I want to show one more graphic here. And I've painted a kind of a, a dark picture of what practice is like. I want to paint a, another picture because there's another side to this as well. So these three circles are the circles of our suffering, but there's also circles of our liberation. And I'm not going to talk about it too much right now, but I, I just want to make sure that you have that felt sense that this isn't just a difficulty. So you see there's still three circles here, but the three circles now are our true self at the core, our personal brilliance as the middle circle, and our engagement with the world as the outer circle. These are similar but very different. So we at, at um, the earlier graphic, we talked about our core suffering as the center, this, this molten hot thing that's just, that, that's driving us. But as that calms down and that transforms, more and more we see that at our core is our true self, our Buddha nature. This true self is the source of our clarity and wisdom and love, and it's at the root of all of us. It doesn't belong to any one of us. We all belong to it. 
it is that core goodness that we have that I talk about so often. That's there in the center, right along with the core suffering. And when the core suffering gets transformed, that true self is more and more available to us. So like the core suffering, it then moves out. So our true self moves out into ourselves, the more common way we think of ourselves. And I'm labeling this our personal brilliance because each one of us has amazing gifts in the world that we have to offer. Every one of us is just a unique expression of, our, of the true self that's at the center of all of us. None of us can replicate what the other one does. Every one of us is vastly important to the whole. That's the personal brilliance. And that true self has no way of acting in the world except through your personal brilliance. It doesn't have hands that can love. You have hands that can love. You know, compassion can arise from the true self, but it needs your eyes and your heart to see and respond to the world's suffering. It can't do it by itself. So your personal brilliance is so important here. It's not something to get rid of at all. It's something to celebrate and nurture and utilize because it's being motivated by the true self. And as you use that personal brilliance, that center circle, you move out into what we call an engaged practice. The partnership of true self and personal brilliance is engaged practice. It's how we go out and heal the world. We take that deep love, we combine it with our particular brilliant skills, and we tend the world, we heal the world. This is why we can say that you are enough. This is why, because this is at your core just as much as your suffering is at your core. You are enough. When your true self partners with your personal brilliance, you act confidently in the world. All of us need you to act in that way, with freedom and skill, without self-doubt. Otherwise, we can't heal this world. So this is the fruit of transforming our core suffering. Our presence and our actions shift from blind self-protection into wise caregiving. Okay, I wanted to share that because I think it's really important that we see that this, this practice is not all about just like, oh, this is grim and hard and I have to touch these difficult things. It actually yields tremendously important fruit, even more important than a kumquat. Okay, well, I could keep on and on about this, but I think I'm going to end here and, and open it up for us to share our insights and our questions and our Sangha wisdom. 
Well, thank you all for giving me your attention. This is a talk I've been wanting to give for a while, and I think I'm going to continue to return to this topic because we've kind of scratched the surface, um, and I hope you find it useful. I'll invite the sound of the bell. <laughs>